Okay, so let me ask you. So I know that you've been taking trombone lessons. I needed a creative outlet, so to speak, and I thought about playing trumpet again. And then, you know, having lived in New Orleans, I really liked the sound of the trombone. Right when I started playing, somebody told me, you really need to listen to this guy, Joe Alessi. He's a classical uh, trombonist, but just listen. And after listening to him for about five minutes, I said, do I really want to take trombone lessons? <laughs> I mean, like, I'm never going to be able to play anything like this. So, Dean Mark Kahn, Dean of the Kirk Corian School of Medicine at UNLV, thank you so much for being here. Uh, excited to talk to you again for the second time, second podcast. So, thank you for being here. Thank you. Really my pleasure. I think, um, you know, it's always good to provide updates to let folks know what we're thinking and where we're going. We're going to talk through your journey first, and I'm going to uh, sort of give you a glimpse as to where this is going to get tied in later because... One of the things I'm really interested in is how your journey, uh, you know, becoming, deciding that you wanted to go into medicine, the experiences you had and so forth, how that has helped you with what you're doing now, which you'll explain shortly. Um, Because one of the things to me that's always interesting is, I heard this, and I'll paraphrase it, but when we look forward in life, it looks like we have all these twists and turns and, and where the road wise and so forth, and we look back and it's a straight path, right? And so a lot of these experiences that we have along the way were exactly the right experiences to, to get us to a place that we are and be successful there. So, so let's start way back in the journey and talk about, please, what you think were some of the early seminal moments for you on this journey to becoming a dean of medical school. Yeah, so I think, you know, it, it's interesting. I um, like working with people. I, I score very high on extroversion for extroversion, introversion uh, scales. And unlike others, including my wife, I get a lot of energy talking to people. Um, some people find it stressful. I don't. I'm, I'm quite the opposite. But when I was um, 14 years old, I lied about my age and got a job in a, in a restaurant. And several years later, I was managing the restaurant because they assumed I was much older than I was. So, you know, that was an early experience. I was like 16 years old and I'm managing this restaurant. And I remember the um, cook or the dishwasher was 52 years old. I think he was the oldest guy I'd ever even thought about. And here I am as boss, right? But what I learned, what you learn is how to work with people and you learn how to get people to do what is right for the organization, how to empower them, but how to also guide them. And, uh, you know, when I started out, I made a lot of mistakes. I still make mistakes, but kind of learned about that. I think, you know, fast forwarding ahead a little bit, um, you know, when I was a um, resident um, at the Hospital University of Pennsylvania from the group, Uh, They picked two chief residents, and I was one of the two in my group, and that's an extra year. But I got to teach, and I got to be an administrator, and I got to oversee a residency program, right, with a program director. But, you know, and I learned what that was about. And the other other part about being um, a chief resident is I really learned how much I like to teach, and that became very important to me. When I became a fellow... I had an NIH grant and spent about two years in the laboratory, and I liked it, but not as much as teaching. And when it came time to decide what I was going to do, I said, I have to have a job that includes teaching. Uh, I don't want a laboratory-based job. And I remember my colleagues at Penn said, good luck with that. But I found a job and a place where I could do that. And, you know, I think that was instrumental. I think, you know, in a couple years after I was at uh, my first academic job at Tulane. I became an associate and then a senior associate dean again in management. Um, along the way, I got my MBA to get a skill set that I didn't have. And then, you know, becoming a dean is something I wanted to do and wanted to be in a, a dean in a new or a newer school. But I think the big message, Mark, that I think is, you know, I've always had sort of a short and a long, long-term plan 
of what I want to do and when I want to do it, right? So now that I'm sort of at the final stage in many ways of a career, it's what do I do next? And, you know, it's what do you do when you retire? How are you going to retire? And, you know, someday I want to get a PhD in something like economics or something. But it's always, you know, what is that next step? How do I get there, right? That's really interesting. I, I never knew that about you as far as the PhD was concerned. Yeah. So we did a podcast uh, a couple of years ago, um, which was about a year into the job for you. Yeah. Right? And, uh, and you talked a lot about your, uh, your background, your professional background and so forth. Uh, so, but I think it's important to talk about it a little bit more. So uh, moving from manager of the restaurant uh, was it the goatee, by the way, why they thought you were older? I think so. I did have a beard at the end. <laughs> anyway. uh, so manager of the restaurant. But then uh, in was it then that you knew, uh, that young, that you knew you wanted to go to medicine? Yeah, so medicine, you know, I didn't go to a very good high school. And, um, you know, very few people from my high school went to college. But medicine was always in sort of the back of my mind. Mm-hmm. My grandfather was an osteopath. Um, he's the only doctor in my family. Um, so it was always in the back of my mind. And when I was a, a little kid, we would visit him in Florida with my grandmother, and I liked paging through the medical books, et cetera, and I liked science. So it just sort of uh, you know, made some sense that that was something I wanted to do. But, you know, Mark, I need to tell you, when I first got to college, I was scared to death. Um, you know, I didn't go to a good high school, and there's these kids that went to schools I'd never heard of, like Choate. And I'm saying, wait, you actually went away for high school? Like, that was mm-hmm. so far, I couldn't imagine that, right? That they'd go away for high school. I was scared. So, you know, I actually didn't admit I was uh, pre-med for about a year and a half in college. I was just too scared to admit that. But that was the goal. I just didn't know if I'd be able to reach it. Just because you thought, maybe I'm not cut out for this, and not, so I don't want to. That's yeah. right. Wow. And I don't want to fail, right? So I just won't admit it. So was it uh, a year and a half into it that you started to see, oh, I, I can do this? Yeah, I'd gotten really, really good grades. Yeah. And I said, okay, I can do this. I yeah. can compete. I'm, I'm going to be okay. Yeah. Okay, so so you're at Penn. You decide to go, or you started pre-med, but you decide to tell, tell that you're pre-med. So you go through there, uh, and then next. Yeah, so what happened next is, you know, when you're in medical school, you kind of think about what, you know, what field of medicine am, am I going to go into? And, um, you know, part of my financial aid, didn't have a lot of money, was work study. So mm-hmm. I had friends who did work study in the post office or the cafeteria. But I got a job working in a laboratory at Penn, right? So I started just watching, washing dishes, but then was able to actually get a project that I did. And I published my first paper. I said, hey, this is really cool. So you know, what I want to do is I want to stay in this academic stuff. I kind of like this. And, you know, the other thing was, was that was a sort of a hepatology lab. I was actually operating under a microscope on mice. Um, so I, I said, okay, I want to be a gastroenterologist. And, and then, you know, when I was in medical school, one of the last rotations I did was hematology. And I really liked the science. I liked that it was internal medicine. And I liked the fact that not a lot of people knew a lot about it. So you could really become uh, an expert. And then shortly after I started my internship, I started really taking care of patients. I derived some career satisfaction in taking care of patients at the end of life. And Hemonc just made a lot of sense at that point. So you, uh, we're going to get to an elephant story shortly. Okay. Uh, but you've got a ways to go before we get there. So you you go to medical school at UPenn. Right. Um, you did your residency. At Penn. At Penn. Uh, you were a chief resident, as you were just talking about. Yeah, and then I was a fellow at Penn, yeah. too. So I was there for a long time. I was a yeah. 15-year program is what, <laughs> I, what I called it. So, you know, as I was – when I was a chief resident – actually, before that, I had sort of accepted a position as a hematology-oncology fellow, and then – they asked me to be chief resident, and, and I asked if I could delay that a year. And um, uh, But at that point, it didn't make sense to move because we were settled in Philadelphia, and Penn had a really good program in hematology mm-hmm. and, and medical oncology. So it wouldn't have been that much of an advantage to leave at that point. So, you know, I stayed there, and, and while I was a fellow, I um, you know applied and got an NIH uh, grant 
mentored grant, but I got a grant and I was doing basic science in a lab. And then what was interesting is um, at the same time, I was teaching a course or two at Penn. I was sort of overseeing and working on the second year hematology course for medical students. And I started and put together a primary care course. So it's kind of like I'm running sequencing gels and then running to teach primary care. What I um, realized was I liked the lab. I wasn't particularly good at it. I had to do things multiple times to get them to work. But what really got me excited was when I had the ability to teach. Yeah. And I just said, you know what? I want to find a job where someone's going to pay me to teach. Yeah. So, yeah. And you did. I did. Yeah. So uh, Tulane. Went to Tulane. Started out as a residency director. Um, and then... Um, uh, took over. My first job was a great first job. Um, the residency program at Tulane had been uh, failing. It hadn't filled in the match. It had a terrible board pass rate. And I said, boy, this is a great first job. I can't screw this mm -hmm. up, right? So I went and, you know, we filled in the match my third year and had 100% board pass rate the year after that. So it worked and it was um, fun and we got people motivated and, you know, um, and then they asked me to be the um, uh, admissions and student affairs dean. There were diff one person in each of those roles, and they kind of combined them. And I was sort of angling for that job anyway. And I did that job for about 20 years. So, um, you know, first jobs are important. Again, I, I talk about a serendipity, what the role that serendipity plays in life. So mm -hmm. when I was a chief resident, we... Um, had already finished our residency, so we were junior faculty. And I had a medical student on my team who was somewhat clumsy, but I liked him, and we worked together. And at the end of the month, I said, you know, uh, where are you from? And he was from kind of all over. What does your dad do? He said, oh, my dad is a new chair of medicine at Tulane in New Orleans. I said, oh, what's that like? We talked about it. And then a couple years later, his dad actually called me. Oh, wow. So we're looking for a residency director. Would you be interested? So. That's interesting. I, did, I didn't know that at all. Serendipity, um, yeah. right? It's who you meet and how it works out, right? This, you know, it's interesting because this teacher theme is one that we're going to track a long ways because there's a lot that even now in your job as the dean. Yeah, right? I don't get to do it as much formally as I'd like, right. but I still do it. Um, you know, teaching is a is a gene, if you'll allow me, in my family. My dad, um, before he retired, was a high school teacher. My mother was a nursing instructor. Um, and I have a nephew who's finishing his PhD and just took a job to teach at a, a private liberal arts college in Ohio. So there's a theme in my family that we like to do that. So, but it, and, and for me, it's been a theme my whole life. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and it's interesting because some of the ways that you... Uh, interact with people as a dean is, like I said, not formally, but informal teaching as well. A absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So you've been dean now uh, three and a half years? A little more than three. Yeah, it'll yeah. be four years in April. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, when you were on the podcast before, uh, like I said, it was relatively early on. What's changed? Yeah, I think a couple things have changed. I think that... Um, Firstly, I've gotten to have a better understanding of the community, community needs. I have a better understanding of important partnerships. And I think we have a better understanding of a vision for what we can be. As the practice plan matures, um, People know a little bit more about us. We get more favorable contracts. Hopefully we get, and we do, we get more patients. That's important. And we can also now, we're in a position where we can build things that the community needs. And again, we're here to care for the community, and that's sort of what it's about, and we focus everything that we do on that. I think um, the other thing that's happened is really putting together the concept of academic health, working with the deans of the other health science schools mm -hmm. and behavioral health to really develop academic health um, for our community, of course, with our partner at UMC. I think, um, you know, we now are in this beautiful building that was d generously donated, and we can now talk about making the class size a little bit bigger. And we've 
you know, been reforming our curriculum. For the first time, we actually had cadaveric dissection this year. And, um, you know, we've started a learning communities uh, program, which we had at my previous institution, which I think is just critically important to put students in smaller groups so that they have a peer network and, and whatnot. So I, I just see sort of a, again, a, a, a growth of what was a startup school into, you know, a school that really has uh, a firm mission and an ability to do, you know, what it needs to do. So you've actually, I think you've looked at my cheat sheet because you hit on a lot of the things I want to talk about. Um, so let's talk about, let's start with the mission, really, because mm -hmm. that drives everything. So the mission of the school is simply to care for the community. Yeah. Yeah. So, Mark, you know, it's a little bit corny, but let me do this. So I uh, like visual uh, references. So I use a vis visual reference of a chair. So the seat of the chair, which is what it's there to do, right, is our mission, and that's to care for our community. Very simple, not complex. You know, we do that um, with four pillars or four, the four legs of a chair, and that's educating the next generation of physicians. It's doing research that directly impacts the community. It's providing clinical care, and it's community engagement. And then the rungs that hold us all together are people and diversity, equity, and inclusion because diverse teams are better problem solvers and they're more fun to interact with. So that's sort of our mission vision in a visual. And mm -hmm. that's the way I like to look at it. Uh, I've never heard you say that before. It's, that's really interesting to think about. And, and caring for the community it becomes important. And can you talk a little bit about it's it's so it's important in general, but in particular in our state. Um, talk, so yeah. yeah, we're a very underserved state for medicine. So you know when you look at the number of any specialty per capita, you know we don't reach the fiftieth percentile. Mm -hmm. I think we come closest in cardiologists actually, but we don't reach that. And when you look at quality of care, we fall short. When you look at mental health, we fall short. And, you know, because of that, it's our mission to care for this community and provide care and improve care and coordinate care. You know, when we make decisions, we always look at how is this going to help the community? How is it going to help us care for the community? If it's not, we're not going to do it. But, you know, one example is we now have two school-based clinics. One was from a generous donation of a donor. But even when that funding runs out, um, and even, you know, it's something we're going to do because we're in schools with kids that otherwise would not get care. So um, there have been people um, who have complained about the amount of uncompensated care that we do, so the care that we provide that we don't get compensated for. To me, uncompensated care is a mission because we're going to care for the community. We don't turn anybody away. Not that it's limitless, because we'd go broke if it were limitless, but if we're not providing any free care, we're just not doing our job, right? Because this community has needs, and there's people in this community that have needs, and it's really the public medical school, and I'm going to say the safety net hospital at UMC, that together, you know, provide that resource. That's why our relationship is so critical because neither of us turn people away. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, it's one of the things I've really uh, been proud of for the school since the beginning is that contribution to the community and the focus on the community as well. So you mentioned about UMC, you know, we had uh, Mason Van Halling, mm -hmm. the, the CEO of UMC on uh, previous podcasts, and he talked about the partnership with UNLV as well. Can you talk a little bit about that partnership and how really important that is to our community? Yeah, to me, and I, uh, I often use the phrase that the relationship between the state public medical school and the safety net hospital, county hospitals, absolutely sacrosanct because we're here working together to care for the community. That's what we do. We don't turn anybody away. We see everybody. And, you know, we're really on the front lines often. You know, we, UMC has the only level one trauma center with our 
trauma folks working there, and we have burn surgeons and a burn uh, service with our docs working there, and that's where we train our students predominantly, and that's where we train our residents. And I think it's really, again, important because we're both public not-for-profit entities mm -hmm. that we provide this service that otherwise would be difficult to provide were we not here. So it's absolutely essential. Mason and I have developed a good relationship almost over almost over almost four years. We talk very regularly. We don't always agree, but that's not what it's about. If we can say this is best for the community, then we'll get to a place where we can agree on where to go. It's, I think it's such an important thing when, when you have that focus, right? It takes, a, this is our focus, what's best for the community. It takes the focus off of individuals. There aren't uh, you know, agendas and so forth. So I, I, I agree with you. I think that that's crit critically important to be able to do that. Yeah, and that's why, again, mission is simple. You know, we care for this community. That's what we do. Yeah. So, um, and so just I'm going to restate some of this because I think I want it to be very clear that um, we have students, residents, fellows, faculty, all of whom work in at UMC as well as uh, individual clinics is also to care for the community and and part of what the two, the two institutions have in common is that we're one of the ways that we're going to increase access to physicians is growing our own absolutely yeah so if you'll talk a little bit about yeah, that. yeah so you know when you think about our physician shortage really as a state um, you know, there's two ways to increase the number of physicians you have. One is to recruit from outside, and the other way is to sort of grow your own. So, um, you know, there are some barriers to entry for new physicians coming from out of state. And, you know, myself and my counterpart, Paul Houtman, the dean at UNR, have really been working together uh, legislatively sometimes to try to change some laws and regulations so we can make that process easier. The second thing, though, is, is that um, when you look at medical school graduates in our state, and most of them are from UNR because we've only graduated three classes and they've done a great job collecting data, but if a student graduates medical school in Nevada, there's about a 40% chance that they'll practice here. If they graduate one of our residency or fellowship programs, there's about a 60% chance they'll stay here. But if they do both, it's 80%. So what we need desperately to increase the physician supply, medical students are great, but we need the residency programs mm -hmm. to train them. And we are woefully undersubscribed. So again, my counterpart at UNR and I and uh, with our government affairs people and working with elected officials are working to increase state funding for GME because it's critical for our success and providing access to care for our community. Yeah, so GME, graduate medical education, I think it's missed uh, a lot of times in the public. They see medical students, they see physicians. GME is, is a hugely important area. Huge. And again, the numbers I showed you, the 40, 60, 80, it's the GME predominantly that keeps folks in the mm -hmm. state. And it makes sense. You're more likely to stay where you've last trained, right? Because at that point, you're looking around, you're comfortable, you've met somebody, you know, you've met friends, whatnot, and you stay. And, and so what are some of the barriers that we have right now in the state and, and some of the laws that you've looked at changing? Yeah, so for, for, for getting docs from out of state to come in, firstly, we have a very cumbersome licensure process for MD degrees, uh, for MDs in this state. Um, it took me uh, about seven months to get my license. It took my counterpart at UNR, I think it was about 10 months. It took the founding dean over a year. I mean, this is just ridiculous. And there are simpler, simpler ways to do this. I think, you know, if somebody is board certified, that means they've done everything else and they're keeping up with their, with their knowledge base for their specialty and or subspecialty. And if they have an acceptable malpractice record, an acceptable criminal record, they ought to be licensed in the state very quickly. They, sh they could be given a temporary license, and then you can go back and check whatever you want, but that's not what happens. So the licensure process is difficult. So why? I mean, yeah, uh, it, 
it, it, it is. And there's no legislative, um, there have been no laws enacted that said, you know, what, that a physician needs to be, a physician application needs to be acted on in 90 days, right? We don't have such a thing. We desperately need such a thing. So just as a matter of perspective, let's say that we're one of our neighboring states, Utah, California, so forth. How long is that licensure process? It's typically within 60 days, Yeah. sometimes 90, but pretty quick. And we're talking the average of the people you just talked about is about 10 months. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so we have to fix that. The second thing is, um, is that we're one of the minority of states that allow insurance companies to limit their panels. So that leads to monopolization. And if I'm, if I bring in three oncologists tomorrow, I can't get them on any of the insurance panels because they're full. Even though the wait to see a doc may be 60, 90 days or more, they're full. Most states have something called any willing provider laws where anybody who meets credentialing requirements can get on any panel. We desperately need that. Um, Senator Roberta Lang um, helped us get an, a, a modified law uh, the last legislative session, but it's been difficult to enforce. We need to put some teeth in the law so that you know people are able to practice once they get here. Can you talk a little bit about what it means to get on a panel? Yeah, so if um, I see a patient and I'm not on the, and they have insurance, and I'm not on that insurance panel, I don't get paid for what I do, right? So an insurance company has, you know, six cardiologists, and if I'm a cardiologist and I see a patient from that insurance company and I'm not on the panel, I don't get paid. So, you know, you really have to get on these panels to get paid by the private insurers. And, and likewise, our neighboring states have the... Many of them, not yeah. all of them, but many of them have these any willing provider laws. Yeah. But I'm going to argue that not every neighboring state has a physician shortage that we do. Mm -hmm. So it's less important probably in states without physician shortage, but really important here. And then... Uh, I'm sure this is a, a next on the list. Our reimbursement rates are different. Our reimbursement rates are low. Um, uh, that is true. Um, the state legislature last uh, session uh, did loosen up the malpractice laws in favor of plaintiffs. That's going to have an effect as well. I think it was 2008 when doctors were leaving state, the state and the trauma center had to close because of our malpractice crisis. I think we have to keep our eye on that. And then um, the other complicating factor is it's um, when we try to get doctors um, credentialed by even Medicaid, the state agencies, that can sometimes take 300 days. And many states, again, have regulated that those decisions need to be made in a much uh, shorter time. So again, these are barriers to entry for folks out of state. To train our own, we're limited by our GME programs. Mm -hmm. And we have, you know, 403 CMS, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, the federal agency that funds graduate medical education. We have about four, or most of it, we have about 403 funded spots compared to California that has over 9,000 and New York that has over 16,000. So we're really underfunded that way. And there are many specialties that if graduates want to go into those specialties, there are no training programs in the entire state. Ophthalmology, urology, um, you know, to, to, name, to name a few, dermatology. We're a pretty sunny area of the country, but there are no dermatology training programs in the state. So again, we're working to start some of those programs. They take money. Um, they take either private investment, state investment, uh, federal investment. I just am not optimistic that we're going to get uh, federal, uh, an increase in federal allotment to train doctors. I know that some of our elected officials are trying hard to get uh, a fix, at least a partial fix on the federal level, and I support them, and I really am I'm very happy that they're doing that. I'm just not that optimistic that it's going to work. So we're, we, uh, as a school, the Kirk Corrin School of Medicine, 
uh, at UNLV is doing a better job than average um, as far as keeping our physicians here that train here. Yeah, right? we, yeah, so a little bit, yes, a little bit. So when we look at our medical students, about 40% of our students stay here to do their residency. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't, it's too soon to tell whether they will actually, whether our students will actually come back to practice because the shortest residency is three years and we've just grad, you know, we just did our third. Right. So we'll know, you know, this year if people are coming back, but we wouldn't have known before that. But we are, are tracking it because it's an important statistic. Again, we need doctors really of every shape and size in our community. So would it be safe to say that one of the initial places where we have uh, I won't say control, but certainly uh, the ability to impact would be in retaining those individuals that we train. And then there's a secondary area, and that is bringing physicians in and facilitating that process. Yeah, so it's a two-step. You grow your own and you bring more in. And that's yeah. th those are your two options. That's how you increase the physician supply. Um, you know, I think, um, you know, for me, again, I haven't yet been here four years, but you know, to recruit people, this is a nice place to live. Mm -hmm. I mean, it doesn't get that cold. It does get hot for two months, but it doesn't rain that much. The outdoor activity is great. The hiking's great. The proximity to par national parks is unparalleled. So I think we just, uh, and, and the state economy is robust right now. So, you know, we got to do a good job recruiting people from out of state, but we got to remove the barriers, and then we got to convince our trainees to stay. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's the. I, I think the overall point is it's multifaceted, right? And we can't just try to attack it from one side. No. So one of the other pieces is that, and I've always thought this about Nevada and, and UNLV and the med school and so forth, is opportunity. There's more opportunity here than, than I can imagine anywhere else. Uh, you know, partly because we are new, but I think it's also the attitude of the state is, you know, sort of a little bit of the Wild West in a positive way. So what are some of the opportunities that you see that we have as a, as not just a medical school, but as a state it, through medicine and healthcare? Yeah, so I think, you know, it, it took nothing more than the pandemic to show what happens to an economy when it's not that diversified. Mm -hmm. So the strip and hospitality are wonderful, and we're never going to, you know, we're not going to get ever get too far from that. But when you have something like a pandemic, you, you know, that results in an economic crisis when people aren't going to restaurants and, you know, the strip gets closed down, etc. Um, so, I think you know we need to diversify the economy, and to me, healthcare and resulting biotech is part of the way to do that. So, you know, we have land in this state. There's other states that are relatively landlocked. We have favorable tax laws. We just need to attract the companies here, attract the venture capital here. And I think we're primed uh, to really, um, you know, build a biotech industry. The university uh, is, is really very, very supportive of this. The president is gung-ho about this, president of the university. And, you know, it's something that we can actually contribute to and do. The other thing, though, is let's look at that intersection of hospitality and healthcare, right? Um, my colleague, the former dean of the School of Hospitality, uh, Stowe Stumaker, just wrote a book, um, uh, uh, Hospitable um, Hospitals, I think it was called, something like that. It's creative, but we have the number one hospitality school maybe in the nation but certainly in the country and we need to be the leaders in how to be how to integrate principles of hospitality and healthcare so that we're consumer friendly patient focused etc and we need to be the leader in that and that's an opportunity i think you know the other place that we um really can can be a leader is uh you know las vegas is uh becoming if not already become the sports capital probably of the world you know we have professional teams we're getting more professional teams we just hosted formula one we're going to host the super bowl and you know we need to be as part of that the sports medicine capital of the world and i think that we you know when i when you look at the university 
Um, we have um, experts in sports analytics. We have some sports medicine docs. Uh, there's orthopedists. Um, there's professional teams. We just need to put this together. So I really think that the whole concept of musculoskeletal medicine uh, is ripe for investment and growth here. Musculoskeletal medicine isn't just the professional athletes. It's the high school kids. It's the uh, uh, older folks who are you know, straining their knees and hamstrings playing pickleball, and it's the folks who need some help with mobility. And musculoskeletal medicine is mobility really from, from birth to death. And we're in a place where I think we can really make a huge impact and be a leader in that field, and, and we need to take that advantage. Yeah, this, this is one I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think we, just everywhere we look, right, are the performers on the strip, Cirque du Soleil and so forth and sure. so on. I mean, there, everywhere we look, there are people who could use uh, more optimized performance from a musculoskeletal perspective. And, and those people who then get injured or have a disease state, right? It's important. And the private sector can do this, but I'm gonna argue not as well as us because we can actually study it in a scientific fashion. We have kinesiologists, we have others that can study this. We have sports performance experts that mm -hmm. can study this. And plus we have resources like bioengineering so we can make the next generation mouth guard or the next generation helmet. And then when you put hospitality in that and you bring people uh, in for musculoskeletal wellness, right, I think the sky really becomes uh, the limit. So, you know, in an ideal uh, mature form, you have a sports medicine clinic that sees patients, that does ambulatory surgery, but you also have um, nutrition classes, mm -hmm. and you also have wellness classes, and you run pitching clinics for high school kids. I mean, it's the whole gamut of musculoskeletal health, and I think we have the pieces to do it, and it's something that I think is, you, you can get a lot of excitement uh, generated behind that notion. Uh, I think, you know, we, we may end up coming back and doing a, a series just on this, because the, the idea of sports medicine in the broader sense um, and, and Las Vegas, the uniqueness of Las Vegas, you know, there we talked just a minute ago about some of the sort of downsides, right, of the not the community per se, but the difficulty in recruiting physicians here. But this one, this is the exact opposite of this. This is the talk about opportunity. The opportunity is huge here. And I agree with you, we, we really need to capitalize on this or we've done a disservice. Yeah, and you know, my friend and colleague, Bo Bernhard, who's the Vice President for Economic Development, taught me early on when I came here that you know, hospitality, the strip, you know, that's the center. But you know, if, if that's all you have and there's a shock in the economy, you know, things really falter. But we can't get that far removed from that because that's our core, that's our core sustainable economic advantage. I see musculoskeletal and sports medicine really being a derivative of that mm -hmm. if we do it correctly. Again, it's not just disease, it's health related, right? right? So within a couple miles of where we are here, there's a hundred of the best spas in the world, right? So we need to bring that in, right, in, into play. And um, again, it just generates another facet of the economy related to our core, which is hospitality, uh, but separate enough that it, it leads to diversification. Yeah, agreed. I mean, to your point, we, we are uniquely positioned to be incredibly successful here uh, with the the right leadership, the right uh, support of it, and so forth. So, yeah, like I said, I think we're just going to do <laughs> do a series <laughs> on this yeah, itself because yeah. it's huge. Um, yeah, and I and you know we've talked about this before. I'm I'm passionate about this area in particular. I love sports. I love the interaction of sports and science, and so this one is near and dear to my heart. Yeah. Another one that's near and dear to my heart is teaching, mm -hmm. uh, something that you've mentioned several times. There's been quite a few uh, changes in our education curriculum uh, really recently. Um, can you talk about a few of those and, and what you like about those changes? Yeah, you know, so being a, a newer medical school, we're able to do things differently because we're not encumbered by what we've always done, which is, you know, we 
um, seven or eight years ago when we had our first class, in, seven years ago in 2017, that was a brand new curriculum, right, in a brand new school. But one of the things that we've always focused on from the found, time of the founding dean is adult learning theory and adult learning principles. And part of that is adults um, learn best when they know why they need to know something. And another part of that is, is that adults learn best when um, uh, they can do things on their own. As such, traditional lectures become really inefficient because who wants to sit and listen to me for an hour? Although people listening to this will listen to me for an hour, <laughs> you and I both. But, but you know, if I'm going to give a lecture, I may as well just record it. It's real easy to do now with my slides and give it to the students and let them watch it in their pajamas at speed and a half, right? I mean, but let's use class and let's use that interactive time for um, uh, active learning. So problem solving, team-based learning, skill building, let's use the actual classroom time for that. And we have really developed a curriculum that takes those ideas and continue to develop a curriculum that does that. We're adding more simulation, which is absolutely critical. We're adding standardized patience, which is critical. And again, the integration of learning communities where every medical student is in one of four learning communities, you're taking a class size of a little over 60 and making it a quarter as large so that students can learn from each other, they can work together, they can study together, and because we're by nature competitive, they can compete with each other athletically in different teams, but that really breaks down some barriers and makes it much more personalized. And I think it's really important. And, you know, um, our Vice Dean for Academic Affairs, Dr. Hernandez, and I both have come from places and have had successful learning community uh, programs and really wanted to bring that here. So, and again, that's not, so you don't see a lot of big lectures here. They're just not efficient. You see a lot of small group problem-based learning sessions, team-based learning sessions, standardized patients, simulation, and that's the way adults learn best. You know, the, the, uh, the academy, the, the School of Medicine's uh, professional development arm, one of the ways that we do this is aligned with what you're saying, right? Our mission is to improve lives through education, information, and cool stories. And the cool stories piece becomes really important in that. Because to your point, people don't want to just listen to those individuals drone on. So being able to provide uh, videos, for example, as a prep, and then do things in class that you can't do just from watching a video, uh, it's exactly what you're talking about, and that is optimizing adult learning. Absolutely. And I think, so I think it's across the board that we're doing these things with all levels of learners, including our faculty. And a key you know, glimpse into the future, another uh, a key attribute of the university is that we have great expertise in gaming, mm -hmm. right, and developing games. And we have an opportunity to work on the whole concept of virtual reality, simulation, et cetera. So let's put those two things together, gamification and uh, virtual reality, artificial intelligence. And now let's put that into the student curriculum, right? So, you know, we have a simulation center that looks like a, uh, we can make it look like a delivery room with a woman in labor. But, you know, with virtual reality and artificial intelligence, we don't need that. We, we need goggles, we need some haptic input, and we can create that virtually. Yeah. And with the flick of a switch, we can change that environment to an operating room or a crime scene or a battlefield or really whatever we want. And that's the future. And again, I think we are uniquely primed with our ability to generate games and our future ability to generate some of these um, virtual reality type scenarios. Yeah, this is super interesting. There's a there's a a uh, person named Jesse Shell. He's a professor at Carnegie Mellon, and he wrote a book called The Art of Video Game Design. And one of the things that he talked about was, you know, video games are really fascinating in a lot of ways. I mean, I'm not a gamer at all, but, Me either, but, but the way that they tap into 
you know, some of our primal drives. Reward. Reward, right? Uh, variable reward. They, because they increase the challenge as the individual increases their ability, they tap into the challenge point framework. They tap into the flow science, these types of things. Positive so, reinforcement. Positive negative reinforcement. reinforcement. Yep. And so what you're talking about really changes education because all of a sudden it's tapped into the primal, some of the primal drives of the human being. And then to put people in partnership as well to do that, I, I think it's phenomenal. And the idea that we, we do have gaming experts here on campus. This is one of the things that's really exciting to me about, the, about our medical school. Because of the community and because of the mindset around the community, people are willing to work together on these really cool projects, right? And, and again, opportunity is a word that keeps coming back over and over again. Yeah. But, I, I mean, I think that's the, you know, that's the future. You could imagine um, a gamified program for neuroanatomy where you're put in a simulated brain and you're able to move around and you have to find the treasure in a part of the brain. So you have to figure out how to get there using the arterial blood mm. supply. I mean, you can imagine how this would work and you can imagine the learning that would take place as opposed to somebody droning on about the anatomy of the brain, <laughs> right? Right, right. So absolutely. That's, that's the future and that's what we need to develop. It's interesting too, because you talked uh, last time about the fact that, that medical students don't go to to class for the most part right and in a way you look at that on the surface and you think about the negative aspects of that but when you start thinking about it from the perspective that you're talking about it it really forces us to think about education a little bit differently and i think better in a way based sure. on the technology that sure we have. i mean why do people need to come and hear me talk I, you know if i can record it and give it to them let them listen you know they're still responsible for the information but let them do it the way that they're comfortable doing it and then when we get together let's do something that they can't get at home right on right. their own so that's let's right. problem solve let's interact let's do that kind of thing and i think that's really you know so when you say students don't go to class they don't go to lecture right right and, and i would ask kind of why should they Right. I mean, let's 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 change the whole let, let's change the paradigm and give them something that's worth coming to, you know, when they actually get together, which is going to be problem solving and and, and and things of that nature. Right. And, and and a lot of the things that you talked about, problem based learning, learning communities, these types of things, they're moving in that direction. And definitely the the gaming aspect of learning and and not just unique to our medical students i think in general those are the things that are going to motivate people absolutely i yeah. i can tell you from from my perspective if i'm playing a game where i'm going through the the arterial area to different areas of the brain i'm going to know that much better and much easier than if i'm right you know, listening to a lecture about it yeah you know. we just need to develop that we yeah. gotta, and we talk we're talking about it but we need to you know, that's uh, uh, that's an area we definitely need to go and i know that the president of the university is interested in that area as well well so let's let's continue this because you talked about a few other things uh, and i want to follow up on this ai right ai versus human physicians from a diagnostic perspective from a, a surgical perspective and so forth um just like any other tool, there's advantages and disadvantages. Mm -hmm. What's your thought about that? You know, it's really interesting. Uh, I went to a fascinating session uh, at a meeting uh, in the fall on AI in healthcare. And before I went to that session, I kind of said, well, you know, when I uh, was trained as an internist, I was trained to be a diagnostician. And I thought a pretty good one. That's what I liked about internal medicine, the problem solving. But it turns out that, you know, there's computer algorithms. Uh, Watson was one of the, IBM's Watson was one of the early ones that do that better, mm -hmm. right? But I always said, but you know what? Really, what a doctor's doing, the diagnostic piece is important, but what you're doing is you're showing compassion to modify behavior. Right? That's what you're doing, right? So I'm saying, uh, you know, my doctor might say to me, look, you're overweight, you're eating too many calories, you need to cut back, you need to increase your exercise. And that's that human touch, you know. But I saw a recent version of um, ChatGPT, and 
the guy put in a scenario of a mother who had a young girl with a potentially serious uh, congenital kidney disorder. And they asked ChatGPT to um, write a script for the mother, uh, write a script, I'm sorry, for the doctor and how he should talk or she should talk to the mother. And I saw this script and I said, damn. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure all of us could have done it that well. So I think we need to, you know, AI is here to stay. We need to figure out how to use it. We need to figure out what it's most useful for. And it's going to be a complete game changer in healthcare. Mm -hmm. No question. No question. It, so it's interesting based on what we just talked about with learning because learning in the learning environment needs to change because the, the learners are changing, because the environment's changing, the technology. It's the same kind of a thing with, uh, with technology and medicine in general. And I think if we do the same thing where we think about it in an intentional way, everybody benefits. You know, there are um, high school teachers that are very worried about AI, chat, GPT, that, you know, the, the students aren't going to be writing their own papers. They're gonna, and, and I say to myself, of course they are. So let's not say, will they be doing that? The answer is yes. So now how do we teach and evaluate what we were trying to get out of student-written papers, mm -hmm. right? So we do know that ChatGPT, even in its best form, hallucinates a little bit, right? Gaslights a little bit. So maybe the, the thing that we teach the students is how do you recognize that and how do you fix it? And how do you recognize what's truth and what isn't, right? And, and it's just a different skill set. I mean, look, when I was in high school, we were taught to use slide rules and mm -hmm. using a calculator was forbidden, right? But why, right. right? This is the future. Well, then I know why. Most of the kids couldn't afford a calculator, so they didn't want to give an unfair advantage. But if you can give everyone a calculator, then we don't need side rules anymore, right? It's, it is. I mean, it's like some people uh, worried about the, the Internet when it came out, right? Mm -hmm. And now it's ubiquitous. Well, and this is going to be ubiquitous. Right. So, we, we, so what, what we're challenged to do now as educators is to work in the AI world, figure out what things we're actually testing, what things that we're making sure that people know, and how do we work with AI to get that type of information. And if it's something that's just not important anymore, like people tell me cursive writing, then we got to stop teaching it. Right? <laughs> you know, it's interesting, too, because I, I, I'm going to say this for me. As a teacher, like, I, you know, I've been at UNLV for 32 years now, it's, it would be easy to get lazy about teaching, right? And just do the same thing over and over again. This is really forcing us to think about things oh. differently, which I love. No kidding. I mean, remember when PowerPoint first came yeah. out, right? Before that, you were making slides. <laughs> on, I mean, let's think about on, it. Or you were yeah. using um, overhead and yeah. overhead projector. I mean, yeah. you know, but we learned how to, how to use that, and we became better at what we did. And with PowerPoint, now all of a sudden our talks, if you did it right, became more interesting. Now, if you used it wrong, just like AI, you had a disaster on your hand, right? But, but you know, again— <laughs> It's here to stay. The question is, how do we use it for education, but also how do we use it for healthcare? Right. right. I mean, thinking uh, the, the way I always think about these things is these are the r new rules of the game. Right. Okay. How do we win from these new Correct. rules? Correct. That's so. Correct. Correct. Yeah. So, so AI is one of the topics. One of the other things that you brought up, which I thought was really interesting, was to talk about what you call the true admissions test, and and essentially, the idea behind it is, forget what you know degrees you have and so forth and so on or if you have a degree if you can pass this true admissions test then you're you're eligible to be a, in medical school i don't want to take more because you did a great job explaining it but it has implications beyond just the test and you know how long people are in medical school um and so forth yeah you know so i think um Look, when you think about what makes a good physician, um, the easiest part is the knowledge base, right? Because if somebody's willing to admit that they don't know everything, as long as they're looking things up, which you can do very quickly now, right, and they're checking themselves and making sure that 
that their factual stuff's right. That's the easy part. And they have enough knowledge to interpret what they're looking Correct. at. Right. The harder part is what we used to say was soft, but it's not soft. It's critically important is how do you show compassion? How do you coach to modify behavior? How do you make your patients comfortable telling you private information and trusting what you say? Right. We always thought that was soft, the commu- but it's not. It's, it's actually mm-hmm. the hard part. The, the knowledge base now is easy. Look, when I was a resident, um, we used to write notes, and we would uh, cite uh, literature references, and we would memorize them, right? And we would me- have a couple, some people with better memories memorize more, and we would cite, you know, we wrote a note. We'd say, you know, uh, uh, Schaefer and all Annals of Internal Medicine, 1984. I mean, we would do that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, completely not necessary. I can find that article in five minutes on my phone. Five, not five minutes, in 20 seconds on my phone, right? The knowledge part is easy. The hard part is knowing when you don't have the knowledge, right? So we need being comfortable and tolerant of ambiguity where there is no right answer. But the not, that's, it's not the knowledge part. It's the ability of the next generation of physicians to show compassion, to show empathy, to modify behavior. It's, that's so, critical. So one of the things in, that uh, necessitates is that people's skill level improves in that area so that they're very good at that. Correct. Is that currently taught in medical schools? We do. I mean, so we do, uh, you know, we teach a, uh, some, we teach communication. We have standardized patients, you know, actors playing patients that also assess how comfortable they were talking with the students. And something, an idea, a notion that I've had for several years, and we finally did this semester, not quite the way I wanted to do it, but, you know, a good way, I think, to teach um, communication and to teach trainees, physician trainees, how to read personal cues is to use improv. Mm-hmm. So when, you're, when you do improv uh, uh, on stage, you're reading cues from your partner in the audience. You're communicating, you're interpreting, and you're doing many of the things that we want our docs to do. I want them to see me. I want them to listen. I want them to communicate. I want them to respond appropriately. And if I'm, you know, if my, the right side of my face is uh, drag is, uh, you know, uh, not moving, I want them to recognize that. So we actually use some folks in the School of Fine Arts to work with our first year students to teach improv as a way of improving communication. How did they do? Um, Time is, we haven't uh, finished the post-test yet, but I think it's an intriguing concept. Uh, yeah, it absolutely is. And, and I actually, part of what I like about it, I'm just hearing it now from you, but part of what I like about it is they're also doing this with a certain degree of pressure on them and, and some, some public whether it's actually there, but public it scrutiny. It could be uncomfortable, right? Right. right. Yeah. And, and this is, you know, when we start talking about optimized learning from a neural cognitive pr- perspective, these are some of the things that help us optimize learning and create flow states, which therefore optimize learning as well. So I, I, I love the idea mm-hmm. behind it. And I'm really, I, I would love to see them do it and see where the discomfort points are and so forth, and then be able to debrief that. So the study that I sort of designed with a friend of mine uh, that we didn't quite do here was there are tests of facial recognition Mm -hmm. that are standardized. So let's give students a pretest. Let's take, uh, we can, can, that could be the control actually. And then let's do some improv training and let's see if their facial recognition improves. Right. I mean, I think it will. I think it will. Right. So one of the things, you know, you again, and that also brings in that other part of the brain, right, that we talked about. Mm-hmm. It's that music creative part of the brain. Um, when I would teach students about um, uh, what different types of blood cells look like, I would always have uh, sheets of paper and markers at their desk. And I would say, draw this. And the reason to draw it is it activates different neural pathways. Mm-hmm. And when you draw something, 
you notice things that you're not going to notice without having to draw it. So you notice levels of detail that you otherwise wouldn't notice. So I think it's those types of teaching modalities um, that are going to be important. And getting back to your original question, when we look at who we're admitting to medical school, I think we can teach most people what they need to know to be a doc. What, what we can't teach as well is how to communicate, how to show empathy, um, how to show compassion. Mm -hmm. And that's just critical. And I think, you know, we, what we try to do here is we try to say this is the minimum, you know, knowledge base that you need, however we assess that. And after that, that becomes unimportant. Now, do I feel, when I'm interviewing you for medical school, are you somebody I'd be comfortable with as my doctor? What has been your pathway? What has been your journey? Uh, does it show that you're resilient? It's those types of things. You know, uh, so I think that's really interesting to think about. And one of the things that I've noticed in, in coaching individuals who are in medicine is not only do, do some of them have a difficult time with showing compassion and empathy for others, they do for themselves as well. And, and in many regards, it's even more so, right? Because they're, they're, they have been successful by driving really hard. And then to be able to show compassion for self um, is difficult for, and not just physicians, people who are you know, type A, very successful, those types of things. So I think to your point, there's a lot that we can do to benefit individuals by teaching compassion and empathy. And, and you know, I don't know, maybe improv is one of the ways that we can do maybe. that. We'll see. Okay, so you mentioned when you were talking about teaching blood, it reminded me, You've got a story about an elephant. Yeah, the elephant in the room. Just kidding. So <laughs> when I was um, uh, a brand-new faculty member at Tulane, um, I got a call about um, an animal. So uh, the, the zoo, the Audubon Zoo in New Orleans, um, had a program where they'd take an endangered species and do um, in vitro fertilization into a related but not endangered species as a way to try to expand the numbers in an endangered species. And they were working with an antelope called a bongo. And, um, you know, I got involved with the bongo. We'll tell the bongo story later. But because I did that, um, the veterinarian in the zoo said, you know, elephants get human TB. And when they do, it's a huge public health problem because elephants, you know, digestion, you can't give enough medicine. You don't know where it's going. You can't predict. So... You know, the way um, that we, I'm going to ask you a question. Do you know how you know if an elephant has TB? It sounds like a joke. It's not. But what you do is um, you can do a skin test on the ear or, and I got to do this, you do something called a trunk wash. So you take a big syringe and you squirt st sterile staline into the trunk and you have a trash bag essentially. And the elephant blows that out and then they do elizas and things to see if there's tuberculosis. So... Uh, the veterinarian was thinking that maybe a blood abnormality could predict um, uh, tuberculosis in an elephant. So she said, would you be interested in doing this study? It's like, of course. So I went, and it turns out I got to draw blood from the elephant, but it turns out that there really wasn't a predictive value. But then she said, oh, by the way, they asked, I was asked to write a chapter in Shalm's textbook of veterinary hematology. It's about that thick. On hematology of the elephant. So I know about elephants, but I don't know about hematology. Can we write this together? I said, of course. That's my favorite thing that I've ever done is in <laughs> Shalm's textbook of veterinary hematology. I'm a co-author on the chapter, Hematology of the Elephant. I'm going to ask you a question in a minute, and you may come back to, to the uh, chapter in the book. But let, let's go through a few rapid-fire questions. Go. Okay? So uh, 20 years from now, where do you see the School of Medicine? 20 years from now, I see the School of Medicine as, again, a leader in healthcare, uh, a population of physicians and trainees that take care of everybody, that provide quality and integrative care. I see clinics that are a one-stop shop where you come in and you see a variety of physicians and other health professionals to get your uh, condition best dealt with. I think we need to be a leader in hospitality in healthcare. And again, we talked about musculoskeletal sports medicine. Yeah, and, and a bunch of physicians who are great at improv. 
Yeah, there you go. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So uh, in your time that you've been here, what are you most proud of at the medical school and that you've accomplished during this time? So I don't like it to be me. I'm going to use we because it, it really does take many, many people. Um, I'm really uh, proud that uh, some of our third-party payers and um, some of our uh, Medicaid providers see us as um, a group of people they can work with, and they value our commitment to caring for everyone in the community, and they've, you know, they've supported us in those efforts. I think that I'm really happy about. I think that um, I'm also happy that we've really uh, started working and developing the concept of academic health with the deans of the other health science schools. Yeah. And we've come a long way over the past three and a half years, and there's a long way that we're gonna go. But again, it's not just medicine, it's, it's, it's healthcare as a whole. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, finally, I think, it's great that our students have done as well as they have in the match. It's great that our students have done well on standardized tests. Um, it's great that the practice plan is, you know, doing uh, reasonably well financially and, you know, continuing to grow. And I think it's really an exciting time to be here. Okay. Uh, typical day. I know you don't really have a typical day, but some of the things you typically do. Yeah, so day. I get up at about... A little bit before five o'clock, I go out for a run. I don't run fast anymore. I come back in, I get ready. I'm usually at my desk, 7.15-ish. Um, when I get in, I read the newspaper. I maybe do a little bit of writing. Um, usually, my formal part of my day starts at about 8 o'clock. I go till 5 or 6 o'clock, two out of three nights of the week. I usually have something to do at night. Um, and really, a lot of what I'm doing during the day is strategizing, figuring out what, you know, what, what tactics we need to use to get to where we need to be, um, working uh, with community members. I'm figuring out partnerships that are important. And again, just thinking about and working on providing the best care we can for the community. Okay. Um, almost done. We're in a crescendo here. Your personal North Star. Yeah, it's caring for the community. Okay. It's simple. And, you know, when I look at two choices, what allows us to best care for the community? Okay, fantastic. And a moment of joy that you can remember in your life. In my life. In your life. So I'm going to be a little bit corny about that. And I met my wife in high school. So, you know, I remember we met hiking on the Appalachian Trail. She was a year behind me in high school. That was 1979, and we're still together. Yeah, there's nothing corny about that. Yeah. Uh, last question. Advice that you would have for prospective medical students? The advice I'd have is medicine is um, – you're going to, you need to be a lifelong, lifelong learner. Continue to learn. The science is going to change. Again, it's going to be easier because it's more accessible. But you've got to be a lifetime learner. And that includes learning new technologies. So, again, I was taught how to use a stethoscope. When I could hear better, I was pretty good at it. I'm not sure how important that's going to be in the future. I think it's going to be handheld ultrasound and other things. So you're going to need to learn new technologies and, again, you're going to need to prepare yourself for a lifetime of learning. Yeah, and, I, and you made this point earlier. You're, you're going to need to know what is, quote, unquote, the soft skills, too. Yeah, um, that may not be soft. Yeah, that's right. Well, Mark, thank you so much. Thank you. This was really My pleasure. fun. Thank you.